Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here and back by popular demand, Mr. Chris Bennett from Farm Journal. Chris, good to see you, man. Hey, it's a privilege to be on here with y'all. Good morning to both of y'all. Stellar to see you again, as always. Chris is a longtime fan of the podcast, and we've yes, had sir. him on a couple times this year already and got some really high marks from the stories that he has told us. So we invited him to come back this morning. I was thinking about what I was going to ask you and what kind of curveball can I throw Chris and I didn't really come up with anything. But when Chris was on with us uh, one time before, he brought us a gift. He brought us a bucket full of petrified wood that he had picked up. And then he brought us another gift this morning. So, Chris, where do you find this stuff, and when do you have time to hey, find it? i tell you what. I, I squeeze in the time anytime I can get on the river. Normally I'm on uh, Tom Bigby or just – a few creeks in northeast Mississippi. And I don't know, the scientists all tell us that, you know, this area, that area was a low lowland sea, low-lying sea, something like that, the edge. And, and therefore, that's why that petrified wood is there. I don't know if that's true. There's a lot of fossils there. Uh, some of that wood that I brought y'all is supposed to be, I think, a palm tree. So that tells you how things have oh, changed. Wow. Uh, over time and hey whether it takes millions of years to petrify or just a few thousand i'll leave that to smarter fellows but i do i do enjoy it uh, it's just it's just pure it's just getting out there looking and when i find the pieces i don't do anything with them but i, I sure enjoy it all day so what's your strategy on the search are you going to take a shovel with you and, and look for likely spots i'll be in the river itself sometimes uh hunting maybe in chest water and below so you hunt with your feet you hunt with your hands Uh, get on the point where you know that the water has tumbled for the whole winter and right there that sediment will build up and those big pieces will tumble tumble down through there or just get on the bank and through the winter it's exposed so if you get to a bank on the Tom Bigby where you know that it's not a lot of frequent travel and you're gonna have a really good chance to find some decent pieces when I was young really younger I mean, if I'd find like a six-footer or, you know, a four-footer, three-footer, I'd do everything I could to, to get that piece. And uh, now that I'm an old man, uh, you know, something as long as my hand uh, up to my elbow, that's about perfect because I can pick that up, put that in the backpack, and the old man can get it back. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I know you and uh, Ward are big into airhead hunting, so you, maybe you should diversify your your searching for, for different things. Like I mean, I, I, I've just never – done it one reason the you know, where i come from there was not a lot of opportunity for that i mean we had some spots where we definitely find some airheads in my little corner of the delta where i grew up i mean it was just some of the last land that was cleared so it just was only recently inhabited well and some people don't like to add to their regular walk on farmland <laughs> so they don't go out looking for things but yeah war and i do go look big a man my my wife loves the hobby because it's cheap. It costs nothing. That's she's a big supporter. <laughs> What's the oddest thing you've ever found, Tom? Oddest thing I've ever found. Well, we went years and years and years ago, we went out to the Mississippi River because you can find good fossils on some of those gravel bars out there. And we found pretty sizable vertebrae out of some animal, you know, about the size of my fist. Oh, That's wow. Awesome. That's probably awesome. the oddest thing I've found. 
Tom, Chris and I were texting last night. He had an idea that he wanted to talk about related to farm safety. And I thought that was a real good combination of the, the types of things that we do on here. Extension type information and then the less formal types of episodes that we've done, you know, in case in point with Chris when we had him on and he, and he talked about the tomato bandit. It's just still crack, cracks me up, man. So if y'all haven't listened to that, well, that was sometime in June that we released that episode. A really interesting story. Chris managed to work dog to bounty hunter into that one. So go, go back and listen to that one if you're interested in a really cool story. So Chris, Tell us what you had on your mind related to farm safety. I know you've talked to a lot of people in a lot of different places over the years. You bet, Jason. I get long-winded, so y'all just uh, clamp down when you need to. Farm safety stories uh, filter to me in, in incredible numbers every year. It's my opinion, just opinion, that the stats you see from places like uh, Purdue University, which does a fantastic job, I still think the stats that everybody puts out or extremely inadequate. I suspect that most of the farm safety stories get lost in the shuffle or simply never make it off of the farm or never make it out of the hospital. Again, that's just my opinion. But most of these accidents seem to fall into two categories, and that is one, uh, purely standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, and two, being weary or being careless or, or being too fast. I think it's fair to say you're not going to find a career farmer who doesn't have many, not one, but many, many stories attached to their hip of something that's gone wrong on their own operation or an operation next door or to their own body. It's, it's difficult to describe to someone that's not in agriculture the chaos uh, that goes on regarding noise, dust, moving parts at all times in the season, obviously more so at harvest, uh, arguably at planting as well. But again, when you try and lay that out to someone in the general public, it's almost impossible for them to understand until they are on scene. Uh, recently, there was a gentleman up in New York named John Butler, and I suppose, fellas, that this would be the classic example of standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know exactly how corn harvest works up there in New York, but I do know that that corn comes off wet. Drying the grain is a much bigger deal than it is maybe in other parts of the country. Uh, he worked with his brother, and they were drying grain. His brother was not out in the field. It was a misty day, I think in October, something like that. And he was standing roughly eight feet away from a grain dryer that was processing corn, and he heard the slight we, you know, that, that sound that uh, metal makes when it's trying to be free. And he turned his body, again, about eight feet away, and he looked toward that grain bin, grain dryer. And as he did, he paused, seconds went by, nothing happened, and he was fixing to turn back. And the, the I don't know what y'all call it, uh, the, the grill in front of the fan, the fan and the grill both blew off that grain dryer. And he said it was a Frozen moment in time, it was like watching a fastball, or maybe you could say two fastballs, come at him. And y'all remember in Little League or high school ball, whenever, when you pick up those seams on the ball? He said he picked up the details of that fan and that grill coming toward him. They hit him in the side, and when they hit him, they hit him in the hip, and they rolled to his shoulder, or maybe it was below his shoulder and rolled to his hip. 
an absolutely devastating blow, took a massive chunk out of his hip, split him like a tin can up his side, actually exposed his lungs, hit him so hard that it cauterized the wounds immediately. Oh, wow. So he slammed, he slammed to the floor. Bottom line was that through miracle of miracles, he survived that accident. Nothing he could have done. They never even figured out what was wrong with the grain dryer and, and, and so on. So there are many, 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 many accounts just like that. And then you have the ones that just tend to be unbelievable of guys maybe going to sleep at the wheel, so to speak. And, and, and I know that I might receive criticism sometimes and being accused of being sensational in these stories about guys that get injured as such. And that criticism is legit. It is just. But I would like to add this caveat. The stories come fast and furious, and, and people, unfortunately, usually don't pay attention. But when they see the grit, the muscle, and the blood of an accident, that's what draws their attention. And, and y'all know this very well. When, when you're doing a farm safety story or telling it, you literally are hoping that one person is affected, maybe changes their way or holds their step. Hopefully lots more, but you're really looking, hey, maybe I can just get catch one person's ear. I suppose the story that stays with me, sometimes it catches me at night. And I assure you, if there's any listeners right now that think, hey, this one's going to fly by, it's, it won't. It'll, it'll grab you around the throat. In 2007, there was a gentleman named Samson Parker on a construction crew, he was a project manager up in North Carolina, and he had a small farm on the side. He had started doing deer corn for himself, growing corn, and it eventually turned out a thing where he was supplying hunters across his county. His farm was in South Carolina. He worked in North Carolina, and I don't remember how many acres he had, a couple of hundred acres, something like that, and he grew, I believe, 50 acres of corn every year. And he had a uh, one-row picker. I can't remember the number of it. New idea, maybe 323 or 923, one-row. He had a, maybe it was a John Deere 2840 tractor. And then he had a bin wagon on the end. So if, if you're listening, trying to envision this type of machinery, you're basically looking like a little train with three cars. Yep. Tractor, one-row picker, wagon on the end. That was his outfit. And one harvest, I uh, can't remember if it was in October, he went to construction work that morning at a 9 o'clock meeting. He was going to leave there, go to his farm in South Carolina, and meet up with his wife at 5 p.m. to go to Walmart. I mean, that just sounds like one of y'all's day, one of my day, a normal day for a fella. So he's going to go to work, he's going to hit the fields later, and he's going to go meet his wife at 5. And the significant part of this is that on his farm, he had no cell service. Once he was committed, then there was no way that his wife was going to miss him until 5 o'clock that evening at the absolute earliest. His son knew, he re knew where he was at. His wife knew where he was at, and nobody else on the planet did. So everything went to clockwork. He showed up at his farm after his construction. You know, it's 1030 in the morning by this point. He grabs his little sandwich, a little something to drink by the barn, puts his phone on the console of the truck. He can't use it, no service. And he gets into uh, the tractor and makes his way and begins to cut corn. Clear skies, perfect day. Is that not the way 
So many of these accidents happen. Everything's going well. I can't remember. He cut corn for an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. I think that wagon was at the point of being full. And he noticed that his, maybe his right front tire was going down a little bit. He decided I'll try to get one more road done before that thing goes all the way down before I air it up. And as he did so, and as he tried to make that last round, last row, the tire went to the rim. So he stops the tractor. Excuse me. He turns off the picker that's in the middle. He leaves the tractor running. It was a curious detail. I think on hot days he could not get that thing to restart, something like that. And he goes and gets the 20-minute air compressor. It's going to take 20, 25 minutes to fill that tire, hooks it up. He's by himself with no cell phone, and he begins to fill the tire up, and he walks around behind the picker to make sure everything is going as it should. And when he looks in there, he sees that there's a massive pileup of shucks, and there appears to be a stalk, a large stalk, that's stuck inside the, 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 on, on the picker floor. The picker, and I, I'm describing something I'm not certain of here, but I can roughly tell you, was made up of about six, eight rollers. They were perpendicular to each other, some rubber rollers and some steel teeth rollers. They tear those husks off, and he's looking there, and he sees, again, all these pile of husks, shucks, and he, there's a tiny window in the back of the picker. The picker is off. So he reaches back underneath the rollers, and he tugs on the, on the stalk. It won't come out. He's wearing cloth gloves, and he, he can't get it out. The tire's still going. So he walks up to the PTO on the tractor, flips it, and thinks that stalk's fixing to shoot out. It did not shoot out. Right here, he crossed the line. He put his hand back in the window, and he grabbed the stalk, and he began to pull on it again, and that thing would not dislodge, despite the picker being on. And so he made the mistake of mistakes, and he pushed his hand up. And when he did, the stalk indeed dislodged. It shot straight up and took his hand with it. Now, as a caveat, but certainly as a kicker to this story, that morning when he got dressed, Y'all got dressed this morning. I did. Maybe you drank coffee. Probably you did some kind of routine. He followed his routine that morning in the house. And he sat on the edge of his bed, and he put on his jeans. He put on his boots. That was standard. And he exited his bedroom. And when he did, his dresser, which was close to the door, he spotted, his eye caught the shine of a three-inch lockback knife. Never carried a knife. Tom, Jason... The man never carried a knife a day in his life. This was not one of the knife guys. No knife in his pocket. He said, man, I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I picked the knife up for whatever reason. The knife had been given to Samson Parker roughly three months earlier at a NASCAR event. It was a John Deere gift from some John, De John Deere dealer. The knife was nothing. The knife was a Dakota, and the Dakota's made in China. The knife was not of monetary value, but it was new. He never used the knife, so it sat there on his dresser. He pops the thing in his pocket, and he went to work. Keep that in your memory recess as I try and recount what happened. So his hand, as I explained a couple of minutes earlier, is now stuck in these rollers, and it was literally, literally stuck between one of the rubber rollers 
and one of the steel teeth rollers. And he said, as soon as my hand hit that, hit that spot, is the pain was more difficult than I can describe. Because I can't tell you except to tell you that it was beyond gruesome. He said, immediately down my arm, and you got to remember, y'all, this arm is inside that little hole, and only really his elbow and top of his forearm is visible to him. He said that chunks of flesh began to roll down his arm. He said that's it was grinding my hand, pushing them out, not to mention the amount of blood, and there's nothing that he could do. So imagine a, a man with his hand jammed into a metal box, and he's scrounging with his feet in the dirt. He was 6'3", roughly 220 pounds, a, a bigger guy, and he's flailing. He's alone. He has no cell service, and that hand is not coming out. The hand would not dislodge, and so 20 minutes go by of indescribable pain. Basically, an hour and a half goes by of un, un, unreal amounts of pain. He couldn't get it out. He's using all of his weight. He's using everything he's got. He'd already given the hand up. He was simply trying to pull it off. And the rollers are still running. Right. I mean, they're, right, they're still right. wanting to go forward. This thing is still surging. Yeah. The machine is muscling, right? Muscling against his muscle. What a ridiculous metaphor. But anyhow, he proceeded to take his boots off, leather boots, toss the boots over the uh, wagon, or excuse me, the, the, the edge, the, the walls of the picker, took his belt off. I think he took everything off that he could to throw it in there to see if it would stop anything from running, and it, it did not work. And he said, man, I'm, I'm wedged in that machine, trying not to pass out from the pain. And he said, I've been a nominal Christian, he said, my whole life. He said, I, you know, I, I let my wife and family go to church, essentially. He said, and that's about what I did. And he said, I'm sitting there and... I'm calling out. He said, I'm, I'm literally calling out to Jesus trapped and nothing I could do. He said, but something in my heart told me this was my road to Damascus moment. Time keeps rolling by and he, he should have died right there. He reached back, decided that maybe in the hitch, the connection between the wagon and the picker, maybe he can get a hold of some a pin, something, the hitch itself, what have you. Of course, he's only got one arm. Imagine trying to fool with this with one arm. But it, he worked several pins free. He worked the hitch free, and he threw everything over the top. <laughs> Come on, something catch. Nothing caught. Machine still going. He had one pin left. If I remember right, it was an eight-inch pin, maybe the central pin of that hitch. Instead of throwing it over the top of that new idea picker, he reached around the side where the wheel was at and decided he can't even see. I'm going to try and insert this pin into the actual chains and gears and see if I can just clog up the whole apparatus. And miracle of miracles, without even being able to see, he did. He did. And that whole machine is just rumbling and lurching because it's not turned off. He's just got the chains jammed on it. And he knows, I'm playing for time. Whatever I'm going to do, I'm playing for time. And he's pulling hard on the hand. No change at all. No change, except maybe, maybe the grip is, is even tighter. So it, it, it hits him. You know, it, it hits him. I got a knife. We all know that sometimes, not all brands, I suppose, but sometimes brand-new knife never been used is going to be significantly sharper than others. 
and it was so in this case. So he reaches over. I believe it was his right hand that stuck all this time. So he reaches over with his left hand over the top of the new idea pickers, and he, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I can't see, but I'm going to cut off whatever I had to cut off. I'm getting my hand out of here. So he cut off one finger and pulled, nothing happened. He cut off the second finger and pulled, nothing happened. He cut off the third pick, the third finger and pulled. And this time, he said, I felt a slight give. He said, so I took the knife and proceeded to cut, attempt to cut off the fourth finger. And as he laid into that fourth finger, he smelled smoke, right? <laughs> Imagine this guy is in this field cutting his, the digits off of his hand. He's in the back of beyond, as alone as alone could be, forsaken. And he's finally getting some, some degree, minimal degree, infinitesimal degree of relief. And the dang smoke, and y'all know what it's from, right? That, that clutch was throwing sparks. Clutch was smoking. And he is laying in tender. If you ever wanted to start a fire... Yeah, he's dry in, corn straw. He's there. So he's like a mouse in a nest. He's surrounded because he's already cleaned out the picker of shucks while he was trying to get to that stalk. So the, 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 the picker itself is filled with dry matter, and he is surrounded by dry matter on the ground, trash. And it takes just a matter of seconds after he smells the smoke, and that whole area was on fire. Picker's burning. And the ground is burning. And, of course, he quickly is burning. And when I say he's burning, that's what I mean. He had uh, injuries on his legs with burns down to the bone. And his face is just going to be blistered. It took him skin grafts, all kind of things at the end of this. So it, it catches fire. And as it catches fire, the wheel, the rubber wheel catches fire. Wind's blowing a little bit. Flames are going everywhere. And he said, as bad as my, as bad as the pain was, the flames were that much worse. And in his instinct to try and push shucks away, to try and get rid of all this trash around him, which he could only do with one arm and which he could only do with his legs, he dropped the knife. So he panics, drops the knife. Knife drops, of course, into the picker, and he pushes away all that he can push away. And he's on fire, and uh, he's lost his knife. Boy, he told me he prayed, Lord, just don't let me burn to death. I don't want my family to eventually find me burned to death. If I die, I die. But I'll trade death for burning. So speaking of a trade, uh, he realized right then, I've got to trade flesh for fire. And as I just described, he had dropped the knife. He had dropped the knife back into the picker. So in one fell swoop, right? And he said, I, I prayed immediately, reached my hand over the top. He can't see, reaches his hand over the top of that metal wall. He said, I just stuck my hand in blindly, and it hit the knife. He said, I picked it up. He said, I pulled it back over, and he said, I just took that knife and jammed it in. And he jammed it into his arm two and a half inches below his elbow. And then he began to cut tendons and muscles. And he cut for 20 seconds. He estimated that he cut for 20 seconds, and then he passed out. And he estimated that he woke up another 20 seconds later. Of course, he doesn't know. But he said, I woke back up. I'm on fire. My arm's almost cut around. He said the pain of cutting was worse than any of the pain that he'd been 
through so far. That's what obviously had made him pass out. So he managed to get through everything, and he's left with nothing but the radius and the ulna. Right, and, and, and you don't have to see a movie to imagine the level of gore here. You know, he's trying to keep his hand from slipping off the knife because of the blood. If this has any echoes for the audience of listeners right now, it happened in relative form back in 2003. This was 2007. In 2003, and they made a movie about this. I can't remember the name of the movie, 72 Hours or something like that. There was a fellow named Aaron Ralston that got stuck in a canyon somewhere, a boulder, laid on top of his arm. He did the Uh, same thing. Yeah, I've heard that story. Ralston, to get out of that situation, Samson Parker is going to copy him. And that is that once uh, Parker cut through all the flesh and he kept cutting with that little John Deere knife, he couldn't get through the bone, no matter what he did. But the 6'3 and 220 pounds, this time really plays to his advantage because he said, I squatted down as much as I could squat, and then I leaped up in the air. He said, and as he leaped up in the air, then he brought the arm down on the metal, and he did it cleave the radius and the ulna in two, which essentially is kind of what Aaron Ralston did. One kicker upon another kicker as he cut through the arm and as he broke the bones. The second the bones broke, the tire that was on fire exploded, blew him several feet back, blew the knife to kingdom come, and he gets up. He's in his sock feet in these rows. You can picture, every one of your listeners can picture this. He gets up. He's running across the rows. Got no arm. The arm is shooting blood. I think he said two and a half to three feet with every beat. So it's squirting, and he is celebrating. The happiest man on earth. I said, what were you screaming? He said, I, I was literally screaming, I'm free, I'm free. I just said it over and over, and I'm running to the truck. So he gets in the truck, and the blood loss by this point is traumatic. So he's trying not to fade out. Got in the truck, no cell service. And he gets back to try and get back to the highway in his pickup truck. And when he gets back to the highway, he begins to try and flag people down. Every once in a while, somebody comes down. Somebody comes by, and nobody will stop. And uh, he said, man, I'm, I'm fading out. I know I'm dying. I literally can't get somebody to stop on the highway to help me. So he pulled his truck. I think it was a white F-150. He pulls the truck into the middle of the highway, so he's going across both lanes, and he just puts it in park. And he said, I just slumped over, and I waited. And he said, uh, next thing I know, an old man and, his, and an old lady come driving by in a sedan. He said, it's the wildest thing, man. He said, I looked out my window, and I made eye contact. They got really close. So they looked right at me. They sped back up and took off. He said, and I thought, that was it. I, I, I was gone. So uh, there was a guy, I get shook up talking about this. There was a guy named Doug Spinks who was an EMT fire department there in South Carolina. I think Doug was a young guy, maybe in his 30s. Doug had a EMT's bag, a medical bag, first aid kit, whatever you want to call it. He carried it in his Suburban, and he'd never used it. And he used to look at the thing and think, you know, why do I, why do I even carry this thing? What's the point? Doug moved several days before. Samson Parker's accident. And Doug took all of his belongings, put them in his house, and he tripped. 
right? He tripped over this bag, the medical bag. He said, man, I looked at that bag. I was so frustrated. Said something in my core. Said, take the bag, put it back into the suburban. So he did. Spanx took the bag, put it back in the suburban. 48 hours later, after five years of never using the bag, he's driving by. And he spots, he spots Samson Parker, who's dying on the highway, bleeding. And uh, Spinks scrambles over, opens the cab up, and Samson Parker tells him with the most, you know, extreme subtlety, like something from a movie, understatement, you know, I, I think I need a little bit of help. And Spinks said that the blood, he said the cab was filled with blood because the arm had squirt, squirt, squirted. Spinks uh, told me, he said, man, I, I swore that I could taste the blood. He said, because the copper felt like it was in the air. He said, I don't know if that holds up scientifically. He said, but I'm just telling you, that's, that's what I was tasting. And another lady, a nurse, happened to stop by at the same time. They managed to save Samson Parker. And in fact, Spinks, the guy that saved Samson Parker, he had no clue that Parker had cut his own arm off. Parker couldn't even tell him. He said, I didn't even know that until the very next day. They were able to call in a crew. He was helicoptered out. He was, he was saved. They went back to the fire site, to the vehicle site, and underneath the picker, they found three finger bones, no knife. Of course, the, everything was charred. Weeks later, some friends of Samson Parker's were out there. I think somebody may have been cutting his corn. And little boys found the knife. The knife, I think from the actual accident site, was 20 feet back. So when that thing blew and he got blown back, the knife must have shot back that far. He spent a year in recovery, uh, certainly surgeries for the arm, uh, surgeries uh, for the burns and the grafts. Uh, remarkable man, remarkable man. Truly a, a road to Damascus moment for him. He won't tell you the story without telling you the, the impact it had on his life and his relationship with Jesus. He, he wouldn't want me to tell the story without mentioning that. But today... Uh, him and his wife took that knife, and they have it there in their kitchen. So like a lot of us, maybe we exit our kitchen on the way to the garage or something like that to leave the house every day. And theirs is in a glass frame, and it's there on the wall. The blade is undone, and you can see it. I'd say the handle is about three inches, and the blade is roughly the same. Tiny knife. And uh, his wife you know, confirmed for me uh, he'd never, never had a knife in his pocket before that day, and today he does not carry one. But on that, I believe it was a Tuesday, on that Tuesday he had the knife in his pocket. For my money, it was one of the most uh, remarkable stories that I had uh, ever heard. He truly was a man of metal, uh, backbone, titanium backbone, uh, the same kind of stamina that I see so often with uh, farmers, but he was caught in an unguarded moment, and that's the deal with farm safety. I'm not the one saying it. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry Farmer says it doesn't matter how long your career is. You've been in farming for five years or 50. It's that uh, moment that comes to bite. Sorry for my long wind there, fellas, but there you go. Well, well, we're just going to hit stop because anything we say is going to detract yeah, from I, that. I don't, I don't have anything. <laughs> I remember reading that. Stellar when did, you, when did you write that? 
maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little less, a little more. I didn't know that was the story you were starting with, when you. but as you told it, I'm like, yeah, man, I, I remember reading that. His uh, name was Samson. Of all the names, Samson. I think it's primal, and that is when you hear those stories, when you meet someone like that, the question that you ask is how would I react in the same situation? Do I have his backbone? Do I have what it takes? But when it comes down to it, the question is really what will a man do to get back to his wife and family? What will a man do to get back to those that he loves? And uh, if it involves cutting off a limb or crawling across cut glass, I suppose we all like to think at least that we would measure up. But again, when you hear those stories, there's something primitive about them. So what do you say to our audience, a farmer, a ag practitioner? What do you say to them about farm safety? I say it's you, right? Your number is next. We all played musical chairs as a kid, and eventually you get caught. So your moment is coming, and it may come repeatedly, and so, what do you do in the moment? Preparation, 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 trying to make those right decisions. And no one knows, no one knows those decisions better than the people that are already out there in the field. But when the pressure mounts, when the timing mounts, and good Lord, when the logistics of harvest is going on, there's only so much you can do. So, once again, you know, I just say, your moment is coming, and ask the Lord, make me ready. Don't let me go to sleep. I think the familiarity of it leads to some problems. You're around stuff, whether it's day in or, or and day in and day out or just on a regular basis, and you just get comfortable with it. And then, like you said, eventually the musical chair stops on you, and there's a circumstance that you have to deal with. You know, Tom, we were teasing with you about working late last night, and, and you certainly did work late last night, but then... And there's some issues that could come up with that. Hopefully, you don't get injured walking through a cornfield. But no, but you know, I, I take I take a tremendous amount of precautions. I always try to make sure somebody knows where I am. I mean, when when Chris talks about being by yourself, and I do spend a lot of time on the road and a lot of places, sometimes with no cell service. And usually, I tell my wife, you know, I know I'll be 30, 60, 90 minutes in this part of the world. I'll let you know when I'm out of there. And I've got that little crazy Life 360 app on my phone. I always try to make sure somebody knows where I am just in case I slip and fall and, you know, break a leg or can't crawl out of a field or whatever. And that's, you know, I mean, that's all joking aside, that can happen. I mean, we can all sit here and talk about how many times we've slipped and fallen in a field. Heck, I've done it spraying around at the end of the corner and hit the deck with the backpack on and CO2 bottle back there and everything. And then you're just trying not to break the hand boom. Or your leg or arm or whatever. I mean, the message transcends farm safety into just general safety. You just get real accustomed to stuff going really smoothly and until it doesn't. And, and, then, and then when it doesn't, then it's, you know, it can be some very, very harrowing situations. Well, we all get in a hurry. And we all think that we're still 25 years old. So try not to work to the point of exhaustion. <laughs> and that's, a, that's easier said than done. Chris, I didn't have any idea where you were going. When you said you want to talk about farm safety, I, I knew that it was going to be a interesting. I don't guess I knew it was going to be that graphic. Is that is that yeah, an appropriate I, word? I, it just I, I think in this case, in this case, graphic is good because 
otherwise maybe it looks like a statistic or just a boilerplate. But when you get graphic, it comes home to people. It's kind of like, as you know, it's kind of like gun safety. You don't get to be 60 years old, for example, and say, boy, I'm, I'm gun safe now. I'm, I'm not like that 20-year-old fella. I know it all. Now, sure, you, uh, you ought to stay on your toes regardless of whether you're 60 or, or 25. Chris, thanks. It's always a fantastic pleasure to have you in the studio. We really enjoy it, really appreciate it. Oh. And definitely appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I think this is an important topic and something that we probably do not spend near the time talking about. No, it's my absolute, <clears throat> my privilege to be here. Y'all's reputation speaks for itself. And thank y'all very, very much for having me. Thanks, Bo. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 